please remain standing and take out your Bibles and open with me to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Our reading this morning as well as the content of our sermon will be chapter 4 verse 32 through chapter 5 verse 14. Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will, will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hand of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more, all, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Before we look at the text, let's, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Lord God, we thank you for this record, this account. I ask that you would grab hold of our attention, grant us the grace to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Enable me to communicate your truth, the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people. I ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Um, if you're visiting, we want to welcome you to this intense text. We're studying through the book of Acts, and here we're, we come to this incredible event in history um, that serves um, as an introduction. This text needs no introduction, but it serves uh, as an introduction in itself. 
um, to what I trust will be um, a solemn message um, of the fact that God, who is God, sees and knows with, with transparent certainty what man, what man cannot always see and know. And as a result, there are consequences for those who, who think that they can escape or avoid this fact. Reminding us that the one who searches the heart knows every intention of the mind, every motivation of the heart, and he cannot be deceived. The one before whom, beloved, there is not one molecule of privacy that is associated with our humanity. Before him, we're an open book. We're altogether laid bare and naked before the sovereign creator. And told as we are that, that God um, ultimately will judge the, the secrets of men's hearts in Christ Jesus. Remember, Jesus said that the Father judges no one. He's given all judgment to me. So don't ever say Jesus doesn't judge. Jesus is the judge. And he will judge the secrets of men's hearts. Now, that fact up to this point in our study in the book of Acts has been the cause for rising persecution that is coming from the self-righteous elitists of the day um, known as the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and Pharisees of the day. These were scholars. These were uh, double PhD guys. Self-righteous is what they were. Now, to, to be self-righteous is to think oneself as a good person. That is, a good enough person to stand before God on the basis of your own merit. That's what self-righteousness is. You know, I'm a good person, as though God grades on a curve. Now, back in school, most of us, not all of us, most of us um, were delighted when the teacher graded on a curve. Grading curves are great when everyone is making 40s or 50s on the tests until the, you know, the curve breaker comes along. You know, the kids who always get, you know, they, they, they blast a home run on every test, 100%, 100%. Uh, the, the ultimate curve breaker is Jesus, who is the Christ, okay? It's not his last name. Christ means royal anointed one, the one promised long ago who fulfilled all the prophecies thereof. He came, he, he, he's the, gray, the, the curve breaker. He's the standard. In other words, to stand before God, you have to be sinless, you have to be perfect. Good news or bad? Hello? Good news or bad? That's bad news. You must be perfect to get to heaven. Now, Peter, the, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, has been heralding that truth to this group of self-righteous elitists, declaring that you cannot stand before God without a substitutionary righteousness. 
You're not right enough to stand before God. Almighty God, here's the good news, Peter proclaimed, Almighty God, the creator of all things, invaded time and space in the person of Jesus, who is the Christ. He lived a sinless life. He kept God's law flawlessly, perfectly. And then he died, not as an example, not as a martyr, but as a substitute for any and all who will ever believe in God's provision. Why? Why is this necessary? The scripture declares that all have sinned and fall short of that standard. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. You've earned your wage. I've earned mine. You will die, and you will die on time. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. The judgment, the standard, perfection. The good news is that God radically dealt with sin on the cross by condemning his son in the place of sinners who believe. Peter concluded his sermon back in verse 12 with these words, the absolute of all absolutes. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. Saved from God's wrath, by God's grace, for God's glory, and you're good. That's the gospel. That, that's, that's the good news. And no doubt, Peter is restating Jesus' own words when he said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the doorway, I'm the gate, I'm the standard, you need me. I died for you, his church. That, is that just a grace-filled, glorious message? Why do so few believe? Well, as we touched on last week, beloved, the reason is that there is nothing more offensive to human pride than the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing assaults human pride more than the fact that you can't do it, you need a substitute. We chafe under that until God graciously changes us. The Bible says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved from God, by God, for God. Now, that message of the cross is foolishness to these religious hypocrites. Remember, Jesus referred to these men. He called them out on numerous occasions, hypocrites, a brood of vipers, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look righteous on the outside. You're filled with dead men's bones. You're hypocrites. A hypocrite is an actor. And friends, let me just say that hypocrisy fills the world. The world is filled with actors because every person knows deep within their heart that God exists regardless of what they say. We read this in Romans 1, do we not? Listen to this. Men, in their sins, suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, therefore they are without excuse. They go on and they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible things. In other words, they turn and they worship creation rather than the creator. Why? Because left to ourselves, we're liars. And we see in Romans 1 that the act of false humility, known as agnosticism, from where we get the word ignoramus, won't stand because at the heart of it all, we're liars. Hypocrites. Psalm 14 says, It is only the fool who says in his heart that there is no God, they are corrupt. They are liars. I was a liar until God transformed my life by grace. I want you to listen to this innate description of the human heart. Look at Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 10. Well, verse 10 says that there is no, no one righteous, not even one. Okay, their throat, it's an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. Witness to the right and the left. You ever use your tongue to deceive? Yeah, guilty, 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 guilty. Preacher's guilty, church is guilty. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That, that's the human condition. Jesus said, from out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Defiled creatures of a holy creator whose pure Radiant, the one who is absolute truth, within whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Needless to say, God, in the end, will judge all actors pretending he doesn't exist or those who tirelessly attempt to recreate him in their own mind. Okay, God will ultimately balance the books. He's going to settle the score. He will right all wrongs, and he will expose the hypocrisy of men. Amen? Now, when, when God in Christ calls his church to himself, church simply means called out ones. Okay, By grace, he's called us out of a lying world. That means a God-rejecting world, you know, raising our fists to God. He calls you out, and he calls you to himself. That's what the church is. Called out ones. He, he gives us light. He gives us life. He grants us living faith. And then he calls us to a very simple kind of integrity. And that is, as Jesus said, simply let your yes be and your no be no. Simple. Oh, it seems so simple. Amen? It seems so simple. Now, that's the introduction. What we have here shown to us in Acts chapter 4 and in chapter 5, is what happens when hypocrisy, that is the hypocrisy of selfish pretense, comes into the church. Now, in, in, in chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, 
we're shown what it looks like when love for Christ, I mean a true love for Christ is on display. When love for Christ comes to church, it shows up as those who are of one mind and one heart. That's what the church looks like when she comes with the motivation of loving her Lord who saved her. Amen? Now, that is in contrast to chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. That's why we're looking at both of these accounts, because they're intended to sandwich one another. It's a sandwich. It's to serve as a contrast, okay? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, we see what happens when love for self comes into the church. And what happens? Mayhem. You ever see that Allstate commercial, that character called Mayhem? I saw one the other day, and now, now he, you know, he's always busted up, and his, his, his suit is all tattered, and he has bandages on his head, and the latest one is he's under the seat, and, and he's serving as a cell phone that's, that's fallen under the seat. The guy's driving, he's trying to find his, his seat, and he goes, eh, bzz, bzz, a little to the left, bzz, a little more to the back, and he, he looks down, and boom, he crashes into the back of another car. Mayhem is his name. That's what happens when love for self comes into the church. It's the stinging reality, beloved, of 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at it, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin where? With the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Obey the gospel means to believe. That's all that means. It means to believe the gospel. You see, judgment that comes upon the church is temporary. It's, it's, it's a form of God's chastening. For those, who God, those whom God loves, he, he chastens. It's like if you love your children, you're going to discipline your children. If you don't love them, you let them run amok. God disciplines his own. But judgment of the world is an eternal judgment. And that's what Peter means by what he says there. Now, at this point, thus far, chapter 4, and we've seen up to this point in Acts that this amazing element of church life, it's joyful, it's sacrificial, it's loving. They're unified. They're of one heart and one mind. You know, we often say there's no such thing as a perfect church, right? Because I'm in it, number one, and you all are in it. Now, here in Acts 4, I might beg to differ, verses 32 to 37. I mean, look at it. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them, and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. Beautiful, yeah? Now they're sharing in all things in common. Friends, this was not a mandate. This was not a command. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is just something that they were doing. The church was under persecution. There was many poor within, and there were some very wealthy. This is not a form of communism. This is not a form of socialism, as some, has, as some over the years have tried to push as true Christian living. 
That's what happens when you take a text out of its context. You take it out of its context and, and you uh, apply to it something that it does not mean. This is not a prescription for how the church is to live. And we, we tell you all, now go sell your property. Let's dump it in the middle and we'll all share it. Anybody? As I've said before, it's only people who, who, who are able to work who don't work who love that idea. It's not a mandate, in other words. It's just a description um, of what is going on. Simply put, beloved, these are true believers gathering together, and generosity is the outflow of their lives as recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you've already heard this morning. Abundant grace, we read, was upon them. They are living transformed lives that can only be explained by the life, death, and resurrection of Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're witnesses of this miracle, and they've been miraculously transformed. So this is an outflow of that, okay? Now, to highlight that, Luke, the one who penned this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, fills us in on this brother named Barnabas. Notice verse 36. Now, Joseph, a Levite of the Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, that was his nickname, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that does not mean they're up on some big platform and just throwing all their money down like you see these lunatics on TV these false teachers on TV, and they, they try to manipulate people to do that. This is simply providing all that he received, giving it to the apostles as they see fit to distribute it for the work of the ministry. That's all that is. Okay. So there's the highlight of the day, this Joseph from, from Cyprus. Now, as we work our way through Acts, we're going to read a lot about this brother. Faithful, committed, a great encourager whose heart was free from the love of possessions. A great encourager. So he sells this plot of land. He gives the proceeds of it to the church. And notice, he's, he's not thinking about how he might be applauded. I think it was, it was two, two or three years ago. As the plate was passed, we found out later on when the guys were, were counting the money to put it for deposit in the bank, they said, um, someone dropped a $60,000 check in the offering plate. Cashier's check. Anonymous. Now, if it's one of y'all here, I still to this day do not know who it is. The point, they weren't seeking applause. No idea who did that. That's Barnabas. That's what this brother is like. That's what the church looks like here in Acts chapter 4. This man is genuinely generous. The church at this point is genuinely generous. They have a love for one another because they have a love for the Lord. It's a love for Christ that was coming into the church at this time. So it's highlighted here. Now, we left off last time with, with persecution coming upon the church from the outside. Okay, that is, as I said, the Sanhedrin telling Peter and John, you guys close your mouths and do not preach in the name of this Jesus any longer. They were thrown in jail. They were released. They said, sorry, but we must obey God rather than man. We will preach Christ. 
Now, since Judas, there has not been any opposition from the inside. Okay? In chapter 4, okay, this glorious chapter ends with believers living and serving as the church should. Here now, enter chapter 5. It begins with a devastating Sunday. Imagine coming to church on this day. Verse 1. Against this attractive backdrop of chapter 4, we have a word that tells us something ugly is coming. It's the word but. It's a word that, that is to, to contrast something, that which was just described in chapter 4. Notice, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira. Okay, showing us yet again that the Bible's not some fairy tale. This is true bare-bones history. There's nothing in the Bible that makes man look good, amen? The apostle Peter, did they hide his sin of denying Christ three times? No, it's right there on display. So we get to chapter 5, and what we start to see now is, is the not-so-perfect church. Now, the church is made up of sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. And sometimes those redeemed sinners do very silly, sad, and dangerous things. A amen? Yeah. Just go look in the mirror when you get home. And I will also. Now, one of the strategies of Satan is to sow discord within the church. Now, his greatest strategy is to convince people he doesn't exist. <laughs> Crafty. Second to that, I think, is, is sowing discord within the church. And here we see this introduced in chapter 5. So here now we're introduced to a married couple, all right? Notice they're not going about the church slandering. They're not gossiping. They're not meddling in other people's affairs. They're not teaching false doctrine. They're not generating foolish controversies or disputes, being divisive, which calls actually for communication, this, or excommunication rather, in Titus 3. In other words, friends, they haven't directly harmed anyone, and yet they receive this harsh punishment and they end up dead on Sunday morning. So let's meet them, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, his name means God is gracious. Sapphira means beautiful. How would you like to be named Sapphira and have to live up to that your whole life? Beautiful, like, like a sapphire jewel is, is, is radiant, it's beautiful. So you, here, here you have gracious and, and beautiful who, who own a piece of property. Okay, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So here, by all outward appearances, he does exactly what Barnabas does. 
own some land, sell it, bring the proceeds to the leaders of the church to distribute as they see fit. Hmm. However, notice there's a great difference between the two, and that is the reason for doing it. The reason behind it. The reason behind the act. The reason behind the charity. Is it because he's genuinely generous like Barnabas? No. Ananias is greedy for Barnabas's reputation. He wants to be viewed as a Barnabas. So he puts on this show. Friends, the main point of this passage is not primarily about greed. What it's about is the hypocrisy of selfish pretense in the church. This is a matter of deceitful piety. It's the hypocrisy of simulated, fraudulent holiness on display. This is a danger that looms common in church life today. It's, I mean, it's always been here. It's ugly. It's throughout church history, that is. It's, it's a great temptation. Selfish pretense, wanting regard in the eyes of people. To be thought highly of. He, they're craving recognition. It would be like that person putting that $60,000 um, check in the plate uh, with their passport picture stamped on it. Glory, it's all for the Lord. They want to be highly esteemed. They, they want to pass themselves off as being super spiritual or, you know, the super Christian. This is what they're after. You know, I'm sure Ananias would love, would have loved for the apostles to have a nickname for him. Barnabas, son of encouragement. Hey, my name, you know what means God is gracious? How about son of graciousness? That's a nice nickname. He would have loved it. Maybe he wanted to become part of the uh, apostles' inner circle, being on the inn, you know, with leadership. God sees the motivation. Maybe he wants to be the object of conversation. You know how we have small groups that, that meet around town. And perhaps he's thinking, wow, when they gather in the East County and down by the beach, maybe the conversation will be about me. You know, how godly I am. Or she's such a godly woman. She does so much for so many. Oh, there she is. The holy one. Look, you see how she floats when she walks in? Wow. But behind the mask, it's a mask, is the desire to be thought highly of. You know, hoping that when I come into church, there'll be a, a, you know, a stir, a positive one, a positive stir. There they are, so devoted, so devout. What happens when love for self comes into the church? In this case, it's the hypocrisy 
of working hard to be something you're not for the applause, the applause of those who think you are. You want to live your life like that? It would be miserable. It's like being a, one of those plate spinners in the carnival. Trying to, you, know, you build this facade and you've got to keep the facade up. So here then, this premeditated deception, Ananias, at this point, he thinks no one will ever know. No one will ever know. But again, friends, someone always sees. God, who is God, sees all and knows all. Look at Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. You know, the Proverbs also say, I don't have it up here, Proverbs also tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is what? Death. It seems right because I say it's right. Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Look at verse 3. But, Peter said, Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Now, notice what he says. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Okay, there's the right to private property. It was yours, man. Boom. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Friends, this is so ugly in the eyes of God, to, to paint spiritual beauty and virtue where it doesn't exist. He hates that. And he will purify his church. Now, don't ask me later on, do I think Ananias and Sapphira were saved Christians or were they just said faith people? Don't really know for sure. It doesn't tell us. Having you know, Satan fill your heart with something, those are dangerous words. But as we'll see, um, as a Christian, it's impossible for any believer to be possessed because possession has to do with ownership, and you're already owned by the Holy Spirit, so you can't be possessed by a demonic spirit. But you can be obsessed of your own temptations. Driven. So we're not told how Peter knew. He didn't have to ask for the bill of sale. Okay, the Holy Spirit's at work here. But also at the same time, beloved, think about this. As a leader of the church, this was a bold move on Peter's part. It's because he might have considered at this point, you know, things are going really well in the church. Verses 32 to 37. Things are going well uh, the church is booming. People are being converted. We're of one mind. We're of one heart. I don't want to rock the boat. I mean, after all, um, Ananias is giving, and, and when, from what I understand, uh, he and his wife are, are very well-to-do. And if I confront this, I, I, I might just plague, plug the well of their doing. No fear in the man. This has never happened to me, but I know pastors who, who, whose certain congregants who are very, very wealthy come and into their office and offer to write a big old check 
And then um, they, lead, they close with this, but I'm going to need you to tone it down a bit at the pulpit. You know one of those pastors, don't you, brother? Someone that was our pastor years ago. A man went into his office and said that. He said, there's the door. Hit the street. That's a man right there. That's a man. This Peter, he's a man. He's a steward of what God has given him. He, he's a leader in the church. Okay, now back to Ananias with regard to this giving. Um, look at what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not stand, sound a trumpet before you. The Pharisees literally would do that, by the way. In the temple courts, they would actually blow a trumpet. And then they would pour money into the... Actually, a, a vestibule was shaped um, like a trumpet. That's why he said that as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give, whether it's to the poor or whatever, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret, he'll reward you. And when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door. Pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, Ananias was not willing to wait for that reward. He had ants in his pants, as my grandma used to say. So he seeks to be a Barnabas for the sake of man's applause. He's no Barnabas. That's selfish pretense. He's a liar. Liar. Hypocrite actor. Theme of the day. Notice, Peter, why have you contrived this lie? I mean, look, the land was yours to do with as you please, Ananias. You could have kept it. You could have sold it. You could have kept some back. But you say you sold it and that you, that you have given all. You're a liar. He tried to deceive. Verse 3, Satan filled your heart to lie. Again, that's not possession. That's obsession. He has a sinful desire, and in this certain course of action, he, he is driven to carry out. Man, I cannot tell you how many people I know, and but by the grace of God, there go I. I'm not excluding myself, beloved. How many people will lose sight of the reality of, 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 of the consequence of such a temptation and they're just absolutely consumed by it, and they become blind. And I know men who've lost their families, never stopping to consider, if this is ever exposed, I'll lose my family. And they carry on. It's devastating. It's heartbreaking. Do you see why we need one another, beloved? That's why church life is important. We gather together, we worship together, we listen together, we pray together, we, we sit under the word together. We're being sanctified 
together. We're accountable to one another. So why fake it? If I'm transparent, if we're transparent with one another, we'll hold one another accountable. Hey, how are you doing with that? That what? Uh, that thing you told me about two weeks ago, that thing. You need a friend like that. I have a friend like that. I have a friend like that. I have friends like that. I have brothers like that. Amen? Important. Notice verse 4. You've not lied to men, but to God. Notice Peter saying lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. That is the third person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one in essence and in nature, individual in office. Right? You lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God. He's deity. And notice he goes on teaching us that when you lie to God's people, you lie to God. You don't merely lie to men. Why? Because Christ is so intrinsically united to his church, he who is the head refers to us as his what? Go ahead. Body. This is the household of God. We are the temple of God. Not this building, but God's people. We're the temple of the living God. So to, to, to lie to God's people is an attempt to lie to God, which is impossible. And the reason he lies dead on the sanctuary floor on this Sunday. Verse 5, And as he, as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, in great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Why? Well, Jewish people in this day, the day you died was the day you went into the grave. There was none of this embalming and waiting and having a memorial in three or four weeks. You were in the ground that day. So he falls over dead in church. You have to wonder if the giving was up next week. The following week. Something to ponder, beloved. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> what killed the man? We don't have the autopsy report. What killed the man? It's not a matter of what, what killed the man. It's a matter is who killed the man. God killed the man. God killed him. God knocked him dead. Peter didn't do this, beloved. Peter has no power. Remember the lame man that was healed at the gate called Beautiful? When, when, when Peter said to the man, uh, silver and gold I have none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the guy probably said, what are you, an idiot? Do you know I've been like this my whole life. So he grabs him by the hand and lifts him up, and the guy's leaping around like a deer. Same power on display. God's power. Divine, omnipotent, all-powerful God. He knocks him dead. You know, some Christians come to this text, I've met these kind of folks over the years, and they actually think, this is so extreme. Is it? No. Unless you minimize the offense. Minimize the offense of the one who was offended. And then it seems so severe. You will minimize the offense when you diminish 
the holiness of the one against whom this sin was committed. Almighty, holy God. Remember when King David sinned with Bathsheba? Did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes, adultery. He had her husband murdered. Was he guilty of murder? Yes. He was the representative king of Israel. Did he sin against the people of Israel? Yes. But above all, when David confesses that sin in Psalm 51, he realizes he sinned against numerous people. But at the end of the day, he realizes ultimately, Lord, God against you and you alone, I have sinned. And Lord, my sin has had an effect on many, many people. Have mercy upon me. Cleanse me. Purify me. Did God forgive him? Yeah, by the blood of Jesus Christ the one promised who was yet to come, the one who fulfilled the kingly seed of David ultimately. He'd be an offspring of David, but yet he's the root of David. In other words, he's the creator of David, but the human offspring of David. He will atone for the sins of David. Same one who atoned for you. So here he is, dead by God. In response to this determined hypocrisy, what do we see? Dangerous holiness. Dangerous holiness. You know, R.C. Sproul, the late, great R.C. Sproul, he just died a few weeks ago. He said this, while we enjoy the benefits of God's grace, we must never look, never overlook his holy justice, end of quote. I stumbled and bumbled that. Let me reread it. While we enjoy the benefits of God's grace, we must never overlook his holy justice. Amen? So here we have a severe mercy of God. This is severe mercy on his church so as to purify his church. Notice the result, great fear came on all who heard it. You think? And everyone at this time thought, wow, the church, that's serious business down there. And their God is serious. Inside and outside. Now, that's not what you would call a seeker-sensitive environment there. <laughs> People dropping dead at church. But yet, those outside, wow, we have great respect for you all. Um, I don't really want to attend but you guys carry on with your worship of this Jesus. That's good. We're staying away. But nevertheless, there was true church growth. True church growth. Beautiful. Okay, now there, there's Ananias. God is gracious. Let's meet his wife. Verse 7. Now, there elapsed an interval, of, an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. She's, she's clueless. <laughs> I heard one guy, I like to listen to guys how they handle tech, so I'll listen to certain guys when I walk around my neighborhood with beat. And he said, one guy said this. He goes, she's walking through the streets of Jerusalem singing the Bee Gees, staying alive. I, 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 I. (laughs) 
So here she is, carrying on the sin of appearance. That's what she's doing. Motivated by pride. I heard John MacArthur preach this four or five years ago. When he gets to this part, he says, how long, three hours, how long does it take to do your hair? (laughs) She's primping. She's getting ready to go to church. In other words, this three hours allows time for news to ripple throughout the congregation. Did you hear about Ananias and Sapphira? Did you hear? Just like Barnabas, they sold a piece of land and they gave it all to the Lord. So devout. So devoted. Here she comes. Looking good. They've already rehearsed the plan, Ananias and Sapphira. If they ask you how much, it's this much. Okay, honey? Babe? And Peter responded, verse 8. Tell me, sister, whether you sold the land for such and such a price. Okay, what's this an opportunity for, beloved? What? Repentance. This is God's grace granting her an opportunity to repent. What does repent mean? Change your thinking. Turn around, go the other way. It's really simple. What do we do as Christians on a daily basis, beloved? What's the Christian life consist of? Daily, ongoing repentance. Okay, do you know you're going to heaven for sure? 100% sure? If you're in Christ, you ought to because you're getting there by way of his righteousness. So now that we have a living union with God through Christ, we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And when when I walk around thinking highly of myself and wanting to do whatever at that moment, conviction comes where? To the heart, to the mind, to the soul. And, And how does God speak to us in those moments? He brings his word to mind. There's no temptation, right? There is no temptation. It will not overcome you, right? But in every way, he always leaves the way of escape. And sometimes that means running the other way, perhaps. No temptation will overtake you, believer. So now she said, um, yes, that, 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 that was the price. Uh, yeah. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, look, the feet of those who've buried your husband, they're at the door. And they're going to carry you out as well. Testing God, that's a big, big bozo no-no. To put God to the test, that, that does not mean sins committed in ignorance. But it is to, to presuppose, okay, okay, having ample knowledge of God's will in a particular matter, and then stepping over the bounds. In the Old Testament, Israel tested God in the wilderness. The consequence, they did not enter the promised land. They put me, God says, to the test. They knew what my law was. I declared my law, and they purposefully violated it to put God to the test. So testing God is to say, in effect, do you really mean business by what you say, Lord? And you know what? I do that all the time. I do that every time I sin willingly contrary to the revealed will of God. And so do you. 
That's why we need grace upon grace upon grace. We confess our sins. We're continually repenting of our sins as he continues to conform us into the image of Christ. Any reason to fake that? Galatians reminds us that, that God will not be what? He will not be mocked. A man or a woman will reap what he or she what? Sows. Sapphira, with an opportunity here to repent, instead chose to remain united with the lies of her husband, and now she's united in the experience of God's judgment with her husband. So if they're saved, I mean, they went to heaven. So what really is the judgment? The point is, and I'm going to get to this as we close shortly, the point is this is a judgment and a sign for the church of Jesus Christ for all ages, which we'll get to. So some considerations for us. When it comes to your participation, believer, Christian, when it comes to your participation, when it comes to your presence in the church, there are two basic approaches and it's, this is not to be simplistic. I know all kinds of um, variations and degrees can be involved. But there's two basic approaches. The first is, what do I get out of this? What do I get for coming to, to, to church? That, that's the, you know, what's in it for me approach. We'll call that the, the consumer approach. How does this serve me? And I always remind folks, in case you're church shopping, and you're here, we're delighted that you're checking us out. But I just want to say this. Um, this is not about you. It's not about you. Now, I want you to be ministered to here. I want you to be loved by other people and know that you're loved by God. But this is not about you. Sometimes people will come to a church like this, and it's not um, contemporary in some aspects, as is, is some places are. And they'll say, I didn't get anything out of worship. That's your problem. I didn't get anything out of worship. The worship's not for you. We come to worship. Amen? The one who has saved us. Didn't get anything out of worship. We worship Christ crucified. So the problem with Ananias and Sapphira was not robbing God of money, it was robbing God of what? Glory. The glory do his name. Now, well, you'll never rob God of his intrinsic glory. Intrinsic glory is the glory he has in and of himself. You'll not add to that, and you will not take away from that. What we're talking about is ascribed glory, the glory do his name. When we gather together, we're gathering for the ascribed glory of God. It's not for me, and it's not for you. It's for him. Now, on the other hand, there's the approach of how can I serve it? It being God's mission and purpose for his church. Okay, that is a committed approach to participate and serve for the glory of the name above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. So question, why do we do what we do? You know, why do I prepare and preach? Why did Ray prepare this morning to teach? That awesome series he's doing, by the way, on the warnings of Scripture, wherever you are. All right. 
wherever you are. Why do the elders and deacons serve? Why do you teach Sunday school? Why do you all who come on Saturday and clean the church? Why do you clean the church? Why do you open and close the building? Why do you serve in hospitality in a various uh, various other forms of your service? Why do we do what we do? Is it for the applause of men and to be seen? Or is it in response to God's love for us, shown to us in Christ, to, to serve in response to his service for us? Amen? That's what this is about. When it's for him, there's perfect freedom. There's joy in giving and serving. There's freedom. When it's for the applause of men, it's complete, total bondage. Because you're always working to keep up this facade that, 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 that we've produced so that people will think so highly of us. That's what God is judging. And when it's for us, then you'll have a church filled with people who bicker and complain and they're always contentious. And that's why I always say I'm thankful to God for y'all. Okay, notice, we're wrapping up. Notice the response in verses 11 to 14. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem, and, the more, and, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. So in spite of this act of God's chastening, people were coming to faith. That's a healthy church right there healthy church. And that is quite a strategy for church growth right there, isn't it? <laughs> Love that. So here we have deceit within the church that led to death, produced dread in the church and outside of the church. And if you notice this, this entire account in chapter 4, it opens up with these words, great grace was upon them all. In chapter 5, it ends with what? Great fear was upon them all. Friends, we have to hold on to both. Great grace and great fear. And when we talk about fear for the Christian, we're not talking about trepidation. You have nothing to fear with being terrorized by God because Christ took the terror upon himself. Amen? We talk about fear, we're talking about reverent awe. That kind of fear. You shouldn't walk around terrified that God's going to strike me dead. I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Awe, not trepidation. We must hold on to both and hold them tightly. So let me close with this. Okay, this account, this is severe, man. This account in the age of grace in which we live, the gospel grace age, Jesus Christ came and he bore God's wrath in our place. That's abundant grace. Grace means unmerited favor. So here in this age of grace, what is God doing in this account? What's his purpose? Quite simply, he, he's firing a shot across the bow of the church for all ages. And it's a way of God saying this, do not think that you can take advantage of this great grace shown to you. 
Do not think it's okay to be a hypocrite. Do not think it's okay to parade false pretense within my church because I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a consuming what? Fire. Don't think for a minute in the New Testament he's now considered a campfire. He's the same. And in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus addresses his church, right? The seven letters to the seven churches, warning them and warning us when his church is unrepentantly impure, he will come and deal with them by the sword of his what? Mouth. In other words, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Now that gives quite a different meaning to behold I stand in the door and knock, doesn't it? That's Jesus standing at the door of the church not at the heart of the unbeliever. He's standing at the heart of the church. He's saying, let me in for fellowship. Your sin is keeping me out. Open the door. Repent. Or I'll judge you with the sword of my mouth. That's what God does with his people. He chastens his church. And that's what this is. That's all this is. It's a warning. A blessed warning. So if you're playing church, let's say you're a Christian, you're playing church, stop. Stop parading yourself. Just stop, repent. Any determined hypocrisy in your life, surrender it to God, repent of it, and put God to the test no more. Is it that simple? It's that simple. It's that simple. Finally, if you're here this morning and you're staggering at the holy justice of God, your eyes are in the wrong place. So you want to move your locus of focus, the location of your focus, you want to move the locus of your focus from, from this judgment of God, this holy justice of God. If that makes you stagger, you want to reaffix your gaze and begin to stagger at the cross. Where Jesus was crucified. Jesus, the only innocent human being who's ever been punished by God. God sent his son to be punished in the place of sinners so that sinners can be set free from God's justice because he's holy. He must carry out his justice. So in sending his son, the son steps into our place. That makes the cross simultaneously the most beautiful and most horrible example of God's wrath and God's love. Grotesque what happened. God turned his face from his son as he hung there. You think Jesus was crying in the, in, in, in the garden of Gethsemane, stressed, sweating blood as he was, as his capillaries were bursting because of anxiety, because men were going to pierce his hands and feet, and they were going to flog him and rip his flesh open? That's not what he was sweating drops of blood over. What did he say? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Cup of what? The cup of God's wrath. He would have to drink to the dregs. He was realizing that for the first time as the eternal son of God, the father would turn his face from his son and Jesus would bear the wrath of hell on the cross. And as we said before, how could Jesus bear the, 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 the wrath of hell on the cross being there six hours, three hours in darkness, 
as Jesus said, that's what hell is, to be cast into outer darkness where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. How could he atone for sins in three hours on the cross? And if you die and reject him, you get sent to hell for eternity. And the answer's simple. He was able to bear the eternal penalty of hell on the cross because he is the infinite son of God. He's infinite. And he could pay the penalty so that you can be set free and you'll never taste God's judgment. That's grace. That's the gospel. And in case you're one who's not a believer and you're thinking, Man, you don't know what I've done. You talk about lying and deceit. I'm the biggest deceiver there is. Yeah, I'd question that because I'm up here. (laughs) Let me say this. If you think you're beyond the realm of God's forgiveness, let me say this. There is no one who comes to faith in Jesus Christ that he won't forgive all sins, past, present, future, except one. reject him is the only way to be right with God. To ignore him. To ignore him is to reject him. To reject him is to deny him. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. Come to Christ by faith. Humble yourself and you shall be saved. Run to him. Repent. Believe. Put God to the test. No more. Your guilt will be taken away just like Isaiah sins atoned for. Propitiation was made. God's wrath was satisfied in crushing his son. That's the gospel. Amen? May God bless his word to your heart. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this incredible story in history of the early church. Lord, help us to be real as recipients of grace, walking by faith, not by sight, encouraging one another along the way as we see the day approaching. Not knowing when, but may we live as though you'll be back this afternoon, but yet prepare as though we won't see you in our lifetime. We pray it for Christ's sake and the good of your people. Amen.